Well, it's great to have you all here, Paul and Marie, that we get this chance to to sit together uh, around uh, some sort of virtual table to discuss and have a conversation about Jung's wrestle with Christianity. Exactly a year ago, I reached out to to Murray first to ask him about uh, if he would be open to have a conversation with me about these matters. And it's been a great year and it's been a great pleasure. And I learned a lot. And it also seems like there's not only me who is uh, wrestling or struggling or uh, engaging with these questions because the following of the podcast has been growing significantly episode by episode. So it seems like uh, there is something in the collective as well that speaks for that what we're talking about is is of value and is of interest also for individuals not living in the 1950s or 60s but living in 2022 with all the complexities of uh, collective life and individuation i would like to introduce all of you and i'd like to start with Murray stein uh, i met Murray as my teacher down in zurich when i studied at isap I always think of Murray and speak of him as one of the greatest storytellers also of the Jungian ethos and the Jungian tradition. Murray left us with a lot of stories that now I carry on and tell to, to some of the people that I work with. Besides that, Murray is also you know, one of the you know, most renowned scholars on Jung and Christianity. A book that I will also reference to in the notes, uh, Jung's Treatment of Christianity, a very important book for me in trying to understand these matters. So I'm very happy and pleased to have you here, Marie. I will continue and introduce Anne Conrad Lammer, and I'm, I'm really happy to have gotten to know you a little bit. And that's also thanks to Murray, who told me after our first conversation, you should speak to Anne. Then a little bit later on, we had a chance to have a conversation about the letters between Sidney Jung and Victor White. We had a great, uh, very inspiring conversation last year. And I know many people who have listened to that conversation that has been very touched by it. I think you brought a lot of nuance to understanding these matters. Uh, so I'm, I'm very grateful to have you here. And then Paul, um, also, in my world, he was just the name of someone I very much respected. I was sort of a fan of his work. I'd read a lot. And you're not only a scholar on Jung, but you've written very important books uh, on Nietzsche. The book, The Dionysian Self, Sigi Jung's Reception of Friedrich Nietzsche. That was very important for me. But I also think for this conversation, a very important book that you and I haven't yet had time to discuss is uh, Jung's Answer to Job, a commentary, which is a great work of scholarship and uh, yeah i hope actually that we will get a chance to have a separate conversation about that as well because last time we spoke we spoke more about goethe and the question of a secular redemption as you used that phrase and how jung is uh, offering a ways of, of speaking of of redemption in in the secular context so thank you all for being with me I will start with the first question. Uh, a few weeks ago, I had a conversation with a union analyst. His name is Jason Smith, and he released a book called Religious But Not Religious, Living the Symbolic Life on Caron Publications in 2020. He said something to me that I think could work a little bit like a leitmotif to help us sort of introduce this topic of Jung's wrestle with Christianity. He said the following, I think so much of Jung's work is his wrestling with Christianity. I think if you want to understand Jung, you need to have some understanding and engagement with Christianity. You certainly need to read the Bible. In understanding Christianity, I think it helps to know Jung, because he gives us some language and some perspectives that cannot be had in other disciplines. At the same time, it was also necessary for me to be able to try to engage Christianity on its own terms, not on Jungian terms, to try to meet it in terms of what it says it is and not what Jung says it is. And so there's a tension in that. In wrestling with Christianity, I'm also wrestling with Jung. So from there also the uh, title of this round table. And I would like to start to go the full round and ask each of you for your personal reflections on the statement, but also if you can share something short about your own, if it's a wrestle or engagement with Jung in regards to the question of Christianity. 
and how you view you as a guide into Christianity. And I would like to ask Imari with, with starting off. Well, I would like to begin by saying I don't find Jung as an entry point to Christianity. I start with Christianity and then I found Jung. I grew up as a Christian. My father was a Christian minister. I grew up with the Bible. Uh, the Bible was more familiar to me geographically than the places we lived as we moved around from parish to parish. So I did not come to Jung either looking for answers to uh, questions I had about Christianity or uh, trying to find an entry into Christianity. I was a Christian. I still am a Christian. So I read Jung's writings uh, on Christianity with a little distance. I'm trained theologically like Anne is. We, Anne and I actually shared a teacher, a professor, Hans Freud at Yale, who was a wonderful theologian, and scholar, philosopher. And so my background is strongly biblical and theological and literary. So when I read Jung, I read him, you know, with a background, a theological background that's quite different from his views. That said, I do appreciate Jung's views on Christianity. And I I wrote my dissertation at the University of Chicago that became the book Jung's Treatment of Christianity. And I asked the question, why? What was Jung trying to do with Christianity? From about 1938 onward, he wrote a lot about Christianity. It's, it's like he really wanted to do something with Christianity and the Christian tradition. And so uh, I answered that question in the book by saying that he was treating Christianity as he would a patient. And he saw that Christianity had gotten stuck in its individuation process. It needed to take another step in the direction of integrating the two things that he felt were left out of Christianity, evil and the feminine. And so he was proposing a quaternitarian God image as opposed to the Trinitarian that we have in Christianity. So I found that a satisfying answer to the question, what was Jung trying to do? And whether I agree with that, in part I do. I think Christianity has come a long ways also in Jung's time, in, in, particularly in the respect of integrating the feminine uh, into its theological and liturgical life. And, and when I went to divinity school at Yale, there were almost no women studying to become uh, ministers. One or two. There was an MAR program. These were women who had become workers in the church and in education, Christian education and so on. Today, about half the students at Yale Divinity School are women. So there's been a, and they're preparing for the ministry because there's a place in the ministry for them, in the Protestant ministry at least, uh, to the very top levels. So I think there's been a tremendous shift and also attitude toward the question of the feminine in the biblical text, finding, lifting out the, um, the images of the feminine, emphasizing them more, seeing their relevance to the whole story of the Bible. So I think Christianity has moved and is continuing to move and evolve uh, along that line. With regard to the problem of evil, I think we need to discuss that separately. But I think I've probably said enough for now, and I'd like to hear what the others will say to this question. Thank you, Mari. Anne, would, would you be fine to go next? I'll give it a go. Yeah, like Murray, I was raised in a clerical family. My stepfather, who was my father for, you know, most of my growing up time, starting age four, was an Episcopal priest and uh, a holy man, which is difficult to live with in the family because his vocation was so powerful and his commitments were so demanding. But it was... As I, as I age, and I've lived a lot longer in my life than he lived in his, he died in his 50s, I appreciate more and more of what he taught me by example and by actual verbal teaching. I came to Jung in my 30s, maybe around age 30. How did I, how did I land there? I wanted to, I'd gone through a, a divorce, which is always a painful thing. And I had a sense of vocation to a healing profession. And I knew somehow I had the instinct that it needed to be based on both psychology and theology. 
And I began looking for seminary teaching, a seminary course that I could take. And the very first thing that struck me was a course on Christian theology and schools of depth psychology. And there I was, plunked down into Freud, Jung, Sullivan, and the existentialists. And it was Jung that really grabbed me. And I began reading, independent of anything that was assigned and whether or not I was able to understand it. I started just absorbing. I was reading psychology, psychology and religion, his Terry lectures. I was reading Answer to Job long before I had the tools to grapple with it. And a lot of his writings on Eastern religion too. I just plunged in. And what Jung did for me first off, almost before anything else, was he showed me a way back into the Episcopal Church, which I had left for 20 years in my marriage as a Quaker. I was a full-fledged member of Scarsdale Friends Meeting and marching against the war, and I would still march against the war. That's not an issue. But I had been living in a, a non-structured, non-ritualistic, except insofar as silence is a ritual, a, a different form of religious community. And I just really missed scripture, hymn singing, the colors and seasons of the church year. I missed theology. I missed preaching, actual scriptural-based preaching. Quakerism didn't have a solid center for me anymore. And I needed to get back into the church of my childhood, but how to do it without being a child again? I'm 30, I'm an adult, I'm, I've moved beyond where I was when I was a teenager. What do I do? How do I get back into this church of my, uh, of the ancient rituals and dogmas and teachings? Well, Jung gave me the path. He gave me an intellectual, a respectable way to re-embrace what I'd grown up with through a new lens, looking at it differently, because he respected the ancient rituals and the ancient teachings. He may have taken them all apart and looked at them from a different angle than any of my childhood teachers would have looked at them. That didn't matter. He told me how to get back. So there I am um, entering seminary with a deep uh, appreciation of Jung and also a thirst for theology. And I've been kind of working both sides of that street ever since. I carried it on, that, that tension and that dialogue, I carried on through my seminary education and then into my doctoral work at Yale, which is where Hans Frey is the common denominator for you and me, Murray. By the way, as a Bartian, Hans had very little patience with Jung. He tolerated my insistence on doing a dissertation that was devoted to Jung. That was all right. He said, I appreciate your approach to Jung saying, yeah, well, yes and no, which is what I needed to do in the study of Victor White's relationship with him, because I could not write about Victor White and C.G. Jung unless I respected both of them equally and shared both of their basic assumptions to the degree that one can share both of their basic, basic assumptions and not fall apart inside. I struggled not to fall apart inside while I was doing that dissertation. But anyway, I got, accepted. I got it accepted and got the doctorate and it's been with me in some fashion ever since and here it is again today. As I've remained a Christian and a worshiping member of a, an Episcopal parish, I'm more and more aware that we didn't need Jung. We Christians didn't need Jung 
to tell us about the problem of evil, we've got the Hebrew prophets. And some of what Jesus is reported to have said is, is consistent with the blessings and curses. Blessings and curses. On the one hand and on the other hand, which is the Hebrew rhetoric. We've got this and we've got that. Reading Isaiah, some of the passages that don't get used in church very much, he ricochets between God's voice telling the people that they are his beloved and he will never abandon them. And they are a polluted rag and they deserve to be burned in the fire. And it just, <clears throat> well, it's all there and it's kind of horrifying. And then we have Jesus in uh, the Gospel of Luke, the, the Beatitudes that are in Luke alternate between blessings and curses. There's woe, woe unto you. Jesus happened to love Isaiah. It's all there in our tradition, actually. Jung underlines the gospel of fear to such an extent that it really took me a very long time in my loyalty to Jung. It took me a long time to realize that the gospel of love is there. It's there. It's real. Compassion towards one's fellow beings is a reality that we need more of. And I'm finally at the, at the place where I can say that I'm consciously choosing to believe the gospel of love. I know about the gospel of fear. I've seen the darkness. Yeah, I've seen enough of it. But this is my choice now. And I think there, I'll shut up now because I've talked enough, but I think that it's not likely we're going to see Jung rewriting Christian doctrine in a way that the church will adopt institutionally. But I think on an individual level, what people get out of Jung may help them in their adult, in their mature, in their conflicted faith. And anybody who's lived a long life has a complex faith, not a simple one. And you can be there with you while you're doing that. Thank you, Anne. Paul, would you? Yeah, thank you, thank you very much, Jacob, for uh, for inviting me. I should, I should just say that uh, particularly pleased to be talking with uh, with Murray and Anne because Murray, your book Jung Treatment of Christianity, I think, was the first bit of secondary literature that I read on Jung when I was uh, kicking off in my studies with it, and and, and Anne, when I was. I had the great uh, opportunity to to go to Kusnacht and work in Jung's library and the front was very friendly, very helpful. And, and he kept on recommending me. He kept on saying, he said, Warten Sie auf das Buch von Frau Lammers. He, kept, he says, Frau Lammers' book is coming. Wouldn't say any more than that to me, but it's it's it's, it's a pleasure to be discussing these uh, these topics with you both because you've, you've, you've helped me formulate my own thoughts on Jung over the years. Coming back to the question about, you know, what does Jung do do for me, as it were. Well, in relation to religion, I think I'd put it, Jacob, into the into the framework of, of Jung as being uh, such a great pedagogue and and the collected works really being a, a little form of education in themselves to all kinds of areas, world literature, German literature, French anthropology, and, and religion as well, obviously, as, as, as a very important part of that. And, and I think the term that I would use that I think Jung gives one a sense for, which is perhaps missing today, which is the sense of the sacred, and, and that Jung is very, very helpful as a thinker who, who has kept, as it were, the torch, the light of the sacred going in a period where otherwise it's very difficult. I would associate it, I think, with the term which um, I find particularly interesting for Jung, which is where he talks about the archaic, and that Jung's insistence on the, on the archaic dimension of, of life, I would say, as being his formulation of a term which is more widely known as the sacred. And, and after all, he wasn't the only one who was interested in that. Where, you know, 
Otto Rank's work on the hero Freud in Totem and Taboo is very Jungian or proto-Jungian, if you like, in, in part. So I think that's undoubtedly one of Jung's major contributions today. Of course, it also makes it difficult for his reception because precisely the sacred and archaic, and we might have an opportunity to come back and, and, and talk about that. I, I, I take your point in particular, I add about the significance of ritual and symbol as something that Jung had a very, very fine, keen appreciation of, and that, that reading Jung helps sharpen one, one own, one own in sense of the aesthetics of the sacred, if, if you like. And I think that's even more powerful now that we have access to the, to the red book as, as well. But, where I'd like to just ever so gently part company, perhaps with with you, is on the, on the question of of dogma, and 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 whether Jung is is doing something. I'm, I'm sure it's compatible with Christianity, but it, it and it might even be parallel with it. But it seems to me that there's an important aspect of it which is which is not Christian at all because it's about Jung's lack of faith. Lack of faith also makes it sound like a kind of you know it, it's monkey. But the way that I would see it is he's someone who who says and very frankly deals with the problem of of not being able to and with all the caveats around memory streams reflections, they have a function as a as a parable, if you like, is that account that he gives of going to to the first communion and this and this profound sense of of, of disappointment. And I think what I find so interesting about Jung is that on the one hand, he's coming out of this Nietzschean tradition, which says God is dead. In other words, he thinks it's impossible for us to believe anymore. He comes out of that tradition. He has the experience of that. But at the same time, he is wrestling with God. He's wrestling with, with religious issues. He doesn't chuck it all out. He doesn't go down uh, the, the nihilist line. Instead, he's doing something which is, well, I don't know, uh, sui generis. That's Jung. He's doing his, he's doing his own thing. And I suppose that on, on the question of, of, of dogma, I suppose the question I'd want to put in is, isn't it always the case that when Jung gets involved in a discussion with religion, that the religious people back off? And, and, and that being the case with, with the correspondence with Father, with Father White, is that they share, they've got an awful lot of common interests, but at the end of the day, that there is a sort of bifurcation that, that's there. And I suppose that's, it, it's teasing out at what point that verification that takes place, which I would see as, as one of the, one of the things which still needs to be done in terms of research is to, is, is to understand what is the process that Jung, that Jung goes through in coming to terms with this lack of faith. And then at the same time, constructing something, which is going to hold that emptiness, hold that lack and turn it into something which is, which is positive. Well, I think this connects to, 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 to another question I'm sitting with here, but I would like to ask first if there's anyone of you, Anne or, or Mari, who, who, or, who wants to, to respond to anything that's been said. I do. Um, yes. The word dogma slipped out of my mouth. It, it was not a, a serious assertion of Jung's position vis-a-vis -vis dogma, because I know, as you do, he hates this stuff. He hates that kind of hierarchical top-down authority. Hates being told what to believe. He respects the history. He studies it closely. It has that kind, it has his, it has his attention, but not his uncritical acceptance. I mean, that's why, that's why I think dogma is a great word. Because <laughs> I think, because I, I think that's exactly, that's exactly the point. Where it, it, if one's if one's talking about a a theological dogma, take take the one that Jung is so fascinated with, because the, the announcement happens in 1950, and as it were on his patch, the, the the dogma of the assumption of the of the virgin, um, Jung gets totally excited about that. But surely his understanding of it, as he as he discusses it, is something which is parallel to, compatible with, but surely not identical with what a practicing Roman Catholic would understand by. Well, I think it has to do with his understanding of symbols. One thing that Anne said that struck me that uh, Jung helped her back to her, the church of her childhood, but in a different way. I think uh, I had that same experience because if you relate to the church doctrines, call them doctrines or dogmas as symbols, you could take them in a different way. And I think that's the way Jung took it in psychology and religion. In the Terran lectures, for instance, he talks a good bit about dogma. And his appreciation of dogma as being uh, 
archaic, ar archetypal. Uh, the dogmas speak of archetypes and they represent archetypes. So he can appreciate it in that way, in a symbolic way. But when it becomes literalized, no, he's not there anymore. I mean, did Jesus uh, rise from the dead? Yes or no? Uh, if, you, if you were there on Sunday morning with a camera, would you have been able to capture it? He would say, no, but it's a great symbol. The theologians I know uh, would say something like that, but they would say something happened that day. Something happened. What happened? And that transformed the disciples into, into the apostles. So something important happened. Well, they were caught by a symbol. What is a symbol? Well, it's a projection of an archetypal content or image. The historic Jesus became the supernatural divine Christ. Uh, that was a transformation that happened on Easter Sunday. And that transformation from the literal historical into the symbolic, I think Jung was very appreciative of and could relate to all the religions at that level. He says to Victor White in one letter, I was reading a paper of yours and I had to ask myself, do I have faith or a faith or do I not? And I had to answer, I do not, but I have respect. I have respect for all the religions and all the symbols. And so that's the way he would relate to Christianity as a symbolic expression of something archetypal. And I think if you push him far enough, you would have to say, if you take the whole story, the whole biblical story and what Anne says about the opposites being included, and you put all that together, it is a symbolic representation of the self, which for him is the ultimate. Uh, it includes everything. It includes the masculine, feminine, good and evil. Uh, it's all there. Um, and you have to accept it all because God is reality and reality is complex. And this is a representation of that reality. Approach. I mean, Marie, isn't that also sometimes where Jung is, is, is criticized? Yes, there is something about bringing the symbols alive again and see the symbolic in what happened. But there's also what often has been, been expressed that Jung psychologizes. He psychologizes and turns, you know, religion or Christianity in this case into, into something of, of, of a psychological subjective process? I would say yes and no. He does psychologize in the sense that he, he takes a religious doctrine and turns it into a psychological concept, okay? He makes a, a translation or an interpretation on the one hand. On the other hand, when he talks about archetypes and the transgressivity of archetypes, he's saying, I don't know, they may be representations of something ontologically real beyond what we can know. It's beyond our capacity to understand or know. So he, he leaves that possibility open. So there's a door into the metaphysical, but he isn't going to step through it very far. But he, he does see the door and he does open it. Mm. Synchronicity. Murray, I think in what you said about symbols, you might have slipped into discussing metaphors. A symbol can be actually the real flower as well as what it represents. And the actual physical resurrection, of course we weren't there to see it, but Jung doesn't actually rule it out by saying that it's symbolic. He can't. I don't think he would rule it out, but what do you think, Yeah. What do I think? About the resurrection. I, I don't take it precisely as Jung took it, because what I read in Jung is that we can win through to a resurrected body. Uh, it has something to do with individuation. It has something to do with the interior struggle with the opposites. And I think that that's reductive. I'm sorry, Jung, but I think it's reductive and self-serving. There is something irreducible about that event. And I can't see inside it. It's like a light that blinds me. And I don't, I don't attempt to say that it was physical, but I can't rule out that it was. I don't know. Well, I, I don't think that's different from what Jung might say. He doesn't know either. And, he, and, and his definition of symbol is it's the best possible representation of something that we can't speak any better than that. Yeah. That's, that's, I agree with you.
Symbols are not metaphors. Metaphors are much, what should I say, much more rational comparison of one thing to another. Yeah. But symbols do have this um, mystical quality or numinous quality to them. Okay. Very early on in the Zofingia lectures that a religion without mysticism is dead. Mm -hmm. uh, when he's discussing uh, ritual, and ritual is rather rational 19th century uh, uh, theology. Without the mystics, religion would die. So Jung certainly appreciates that mystical sense, which he later would call the numinous after Otto. And, and he doesn't reduce the numinous. I think he leaves it at the symbolic level and says, we don't know what the symbols really represent. It's beyond our knowing. I feel like we could we could go deeper on on this and follow this stream, but one of my roles uh, would be to keep the time. So that's why I, I actually would like us to move on to the next question and then come back to this because I could see that these things tie into each other. And and this the second question I'd like to ask all of you connects to something you also said in the introduction, Marie. What you tried with your research on Jungian Christianity and Jung's treatment on Christianity, you said, what, what did he want to do with Christianity? What did you want to do? And you gave an answer to that. But I think part of my own wrestle, and, and, and maybe a few others, is, is to try to sort of still reconcile this question. At times when you read Jung, maybe the younger version of Jung, you have a sense that he wants to reform Christianity or that analytical psychology or in the early days with the conversation with Freud is that psychoanalysis has a role to sort of vivify and rejuvenate Christianity. We have, you know, of course, the early vision of the Basel Cathedral and something of the old being destroyed, but also the question of yeah, rejuvenation or bringing the new life into Christianity. So is he a reformer or does he then try to to, to transcend Christianity and its analytical psychology, an attempt to, by you, to dream the myth onward, as he said, the Christian myth onward, or is it actually a break with Christianity? I'll, I'll, I'll go first only because, as, as I always say to my students, if you go, if you go first, then, then you don't have to worry about having to go in at a later stage. So I'm going to, I'm going to try and follow my, my own advice, but the question that you put, if I may, to, to our previous discussion, um, about symbolism, because it seems to me that this is really key to uh, to, 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 to Jung's role. And I think, Murray, you're absolutely right to talk about the importance of, of, of mysticism for Jung, and, and, and Jung was a great appreciator, particularly of the German mystical tradition. Of course, Meister Eckhart, I think, is the figure that comes to mind there as, as, as significant. And then, of course, that's a, that's a good case study of saying, well, you know, what on earth is Meister Eckhart about? And and, and, it, and and it shows maybe just how complex these questions are that Jung is, is, is struggling with. It seems to me that he's doing that. That Jung is doing a number of things in relation to religion and, and the symbol. First of all, going back to transformations and symbols of the libido, he says the symbol, considered from the standpoint of actual truth, is misleading, indeed. But it is psychologically true. That's the point, isn't it? It's psychologically true because it was and is the bridge to all the greatest achievements of humanity. So we have a, a kind of cultural theory that Jung is proposing here. The symbol is not literally true, but it has this function which enables us to be creative. It, it's the bridge to the greatest genes of humanity. The second movement, it seems to me, is, but does the symbolism still work? Because he then goes on to say, this would be the course of moral autonomy of perfect freedom. When the human being could, without compulsion, that which they must do, and from this knowledge, without delusion, through belief in the religious symbols. So there seems to be a slightly different take on the symbol, because, because belief in the religious symbols is seen to be as a delusion in some way, albeit a creative one. Then, and I think this ties in directly to your question, if I, if I may, Jacob, which is what you think about the symbolism of Christianity. And, and this point about can we believe it anymore, I think is, is very clearly there in the lecture that he gives to the Guild of Pastoral Psychology, movement organization still going in London in 1939, when he says this, we can't turn the wheel backwards. We can't go back to the symbolism that is gone. No sooner do you know that this thing is symbolic, than you say, 
Oh, well, presumably it means something else. Doubt has killed it, has devoured it. So you cannot go back. I cannot go back to the Catholic Church. I cannot experience the miracle of the Mass. I know too much about it. I know it is the truth, but it is the truth in a form in which I cannot accept it anymore. I cannot say this is the sacrifice of Christ and see him anymore. I cannot. It is no more true to me. It does not express my psychological condition. My psychological condition wants something else. I must have a situation in which that thing becomes true once more. I need a new form. And, and that's the call of a reformer, isn't it? I need it. I need a new form. That's what it seems to be always doing with Christianity. I think he says to Victor White, the new wine needs new bottles or new wineskins or something. So uh, I think for Jung, he did create his own myth, right? He went on search for what is my myth? And he wrote Liber Novus. Liber Novus is his Bible. He discovered his myth through his dreams, through his active imagination. And that's what he stood on. That for him was numinous experience that was his ground. And he interpreted everything else more or less out of that ground. His writings on alchemy and so on you can read now that we have the red book in front of us we can see passages in, in volume 14 monsieur Canum's direct references back to his experience so i think he did create a, a religion for himself that is not so different from christianity but it is his religion i remember peter holmans who was my uh, my uh, dissertation advisor, main professor at the University of Chicago, and who taught Jung to at the Divinity School at the, at the University of Chicago, saying to me one time uh, when I asked him, well, you know, are, are you are you doing what Jung did? Are you creating a myth for, for your own life? He said, no, I don't think I'm capable of creating a religion for myself. I'm just not up to it. Now, he was a very intelligent man. He was an Episcopal minister, priest, ordained in the Episcopal Church, and I think he continued to function in that role. He wasn't particularly pious, but he, he recognized the difficulty and the enormous effort that it would take when you look at what Jung did to create his Vipernomus. Who's going to do that? How many people in the world are going to ever be able to do something like that? Very limited. Murray, in creating Vipernomus, Jung was not evangelical. He was creating it for himself, sharing it with a very limited, very limited group of people. And it's not until, you know, decades after his death that with a certain amount of misgiving, it was finally published. Well, wonderful that it was, but it wasn't his idea to create a religion and, no. gather, and gather a community around him. To worship, to worship with him. Oh, absolutely not. In fact, one of the things that I think Jung fails to grasp and doesn't even try to grapple with in his dialogue with Victor White is the meaning of the body of Christ as a social community. For Victor White, that was essential. And he tried so hard to get Jung to see at certain points in their correspondence, you see him trying to show this to Jung. Jung had no, no patience with it. That was not what he was go, going for. And because he didn't appreciate that aspect of Catholicism in any of its forms, it doesn't have to be Roman Catholicism. There's, there's the English version, too, and, and other forms. He was not inside. He had one foot in, one foot out. But you're right, Murray, that that was a therapeutic stance for him. He needed to have one foot in, one foot out in order to take a therapeutic approach to what, what does it mean, actually? Jacob, what does it mean to, to dream the Christian myth onward? Who's doing the dreaming? And which part of the Christian church are we talking about? It's a church that's undergone enormous, you know, splittings 
and it matters whose dream it is. I've known, I've known senior Jungian analysts, teachers in their own right, who had such a hostile projection onto everything Christian that it was quite chilling. Who's, who's doing the dreaming? I'm really stumped. I, I really don't know. You know, when I, when I set out to do my dissertation, I wanted to do something on the relationship between psychology and theology. Well, that was going to mean Jung's psychology. So I had my, I had my psych, psychologist picked out, but theology, that's huge. Who was going to represent theology? Which theology? And it was a Jungian analyst in the area of New Haven who said, have you read Jung's letters to Victor White? And that got me started. And then it was then it was a case study of Jung and White. But we've got to have individuals in mind. Whose voices are we invoking with this broad question of dreaming the Christian myth onward? Which myth? Well, that's a quote from Jung, you know. I mean, Jung's expression of dreaming the Christian myth onwards. And to me, What's striking living in this time in Europe is how, in this part of the world, the Christian church is absolutely lacking a, a dream. The music doesn't seem to be in the church, or it seems like the church is not uh, where the energy is moving, where the dream is happening. While, in parallel to that, in the practice of uh, as being a union analyst working here, the cues are long. You know, Jung is sort of in vogue again. There's something in Jungian psychology that holds a, a certain energy. And to me, these two things, Jungian analysis and what it offers, and Christianity is, is deeply tied together. It doesn't have to be. Jungian psychology works very well for someone who is a Muslim or, you know, uh, from another religion as well. It can work perfectly well as a therapeutic technique. But at times, Jung is expressing that, yeah, the, the hope to reform Christianity or the hope to dream the, myth, the Christian myth onward. I'm fantasizing, and it might be childish, but I fantasize at times about yeah, what would have happened, you know, if Jung would have, you know, owned this Christian faith, or if maybe if Jung would have kneeled to the ground, or if Jung would have expressed himself as a Christian. I think you would agree the church needs Jung. Jungian psychology has something to offer the church, but I also do believe that, that Jungian psychology needs the church. You know? Or I, I think there is something there, you know, as we've been touching upon in the question of lack of community or the difficulty that you might have had with, with aspects of Christianity that had to do with the social aspect of it. So I, I think that there's a tension here. Well, to Ed's question, dreaming the myth onward, who's dreaming the myth onward, a number of thoughts come to my mind. I mean, one would typically look to the theologians to dream the myth onward. Right? They're, they're in the tradition, and their dreams would provide the impetus for evolving the doctrines further, applying them further, enlivening them with some new libido, some new symbolism, and so on. I think we're rather bereft today. I mean, Bart was a great theologian, and he, he brought a lot of life to theology. His dialectical theology was very alive. People, I remember studying Bart and all those footnotes, and very exciting. And as you say, Hans Frey was a Bartian. Um, so Bart really captured the uh, theological imagination in his time. But since then, I don't, I don't know of any theologians who, who have done that. Now, can we look to psychologists to do that? Psychologically minded theologians or theologically minded psychologists, but people who are not necessarily in the role of the theologian to, to dream that myth onward and what that would mean. I mean, dreaming a myth onward means in Jungian terminology, taking seriously the dream that you have had, say you have a symbolic dream, which in Christianity would be the mythos of, of Christ, and you take that uh, 
seriously and you put it to work, you apply it in your life and you do active imagination with it. You know, you take the dream and you keep working with the dream. You work with it in active imagination. You work with it in how do you apply this dream? How, how does it change your life? What difference does it make? Christianity is a universal religion and it has to capture the universal mind. It has to capture the global mind. It somehow has to transcend its provincial in, in a very subtle way, not by overcoming its, the other religions, but by offering something that is so exciting and so convincing and so beyond what others offer that it would be the new vision on a global level. It has to go global, not Catholic, but global. And I think there are some thinkers who have tried to do that. Tyre, probably. And, but this idea that it has to evolve, I think that was Jung's, like, individuals have to evolve. They have to keep on growing. If you stop and just look to the past, it, it becomes stagnant. And that's what he says. You can't go backward. It has to go forward. And that means dreaming the dream lot, taking the mythos and working it in a new and exciting way different way. That would be my thought on that question. It's it's really it's really inspiring, Murray, what you say. And then I'm thinking of what happened to Teilhard, that the the Catholic, the, the, the hierarchical uh, the pontifical rulings of the nineteen fifties flattened him. They were so afraid of modernism, weren't they? I mean, so afraid, yeah. so afraid of modernism. That was one of the things that flattened out Victor White's career also. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then I'm thinking of our, our current Pope and how he seems to be working within the system as well as possible to evolve. I think so. Yeah. Evolve the realities of the Roman Catholic Church, and frankly, I don't know if he will survive. Yeah. It's so bogged down in bureaucracy and um, parties and uh, yeah. interest groups. And... Well, he's surrounded by a power structure that he um, disagrees with. Yeah. And they will, I, I don't know about stop at nothing, but they're very dangerous to him. But I, I just wanted to come back to this this sense of, of, of urgency and worry, which which I find there. Jung, when he talks about, for example, in his paper, Psychology of the Conscience, of Psychology of the Unconscious, when he talks about Nietzsche, and he says the case of Nietzsche shows, on the one hand, the consequences of neurotic one-sidedness. Let's leave that on one side for now. And on the other hand, the dangers that lurk in this leap beyond Christianity. Yes. Nietzsche, Nietzsche undoubtedly felt the Christian denial of animal nature very deeply indeed, and therefore he sought a higher human wholeness beyond good and evil. But he who seriously criticizes the basic attitudes of Christianity also forfeits the protection which those bestow upon him. He delivers himself up unresistingly to the animal's psyche. That is the moment of Dionysian frenzy. And that's a very early paper, isn't it? I think it's about 2017. But again, in that, that paper, the Guild of Psychology, he, make, he makes very much, very much a similar point where he talks about the dangers that are involved. He says to be to be extra ecclesium, he says, is very, very dangerous. You're no more protected. You're no more in the consensus gentium, no more in the lap of the old compassionate mother. You are alone and you are confronted with all the demons of hell. That is what people don't know. So, so there, there seems to be a sense of, of great worry, urgency, anxiety, a sense of danger that's involved with, with giving up of Christianity as well. When I also think it's important maybe to stress reformation, although Jung said he's looking for the new, I would think as a Jungian analyst as well, that he thinks about uh, going back in order to go forward. Or that there is a sort of renaissance absolutely yeah. and, and, and there is a there is a voice i mean i would say there is a voice out there actually that is doing a lot of good for unions and for uh, christians and that doesn't mean that i fully support what he says 
but that is the Canadian Jordan B. Peterson, which some of you are probably aware of, who's a psychologist who is very fond of Jung. And he has, you know, X millions of followers on YouTube, and he has high level conversations, leading theologians and, and, and church people from the church about Christianity and Jung. And in a sense, you know, and, and he, this man in himself, in his last 10 years, many people find to Christ and Christianity through Jordan B. Pearson into Jung, back to Christianity. So he's a voice. He's not a theologian, but he's a very powerful voice in the culture right now. There's a lot of discussion happening around Christianity and around you, but it's in the public discourse. Maybe it's also happening within the, within the union field or within the church. I just wanted to mention as well, in terms of voices that one hears which are contributed to the debate, is someone who I found very useful at reading is Eugen Drevermann. And, and Eugen Drevermann seems to be a good example of, of someone of coming out of the Catholic Church, who engages very, very deeply with Jung, then of course, in turn, Trevermann leaves the church. And, and and that's why I'm just, I see, I see more as a tension between Jungianism and, 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 and Christianity, albeit a very, very, albeit a very, very fruitful one. I, I suppose I'd put it like this. Are they, at the end of the day, Christianity on the one hand, Catholicism, the church on one hand, Jung and, and analytical psychology on the other, are they actually playing the same game? Do they actually want the same outcomes? And that's not to judge either of them as positive or negative, but simply to say, are they actually doing the same sort of thing? It's, it's similar to the question uh, that I've been dealing with and with some colleagues. Is the goal of individuation the same as the goal of Eastern meditation? Okay. Is the final result the same if you get the fully individuated Jungian, and put them beside the uh, enlightened Zen Buddhist, um, do they look alike or are they very different? So uh, these are interesting comparisons and you always find differences and you find some similarities, but they, I think they, all of these share something, a glimpse of something beyond, certainly beyond the rational. Uh, everybody, all the religious traditions will say, thinking can't get you. The Buddhists will say that you know, it has to come somewhere else. You have to have a moment of enlightenment. Christianity will say, philosophy will take you so far, but then you need revelation. You need something beyond the rational. And how does that come to you? Well, Jung offers an answer to that. How does it come to you? Look at your dreams. Look at your imagination. Let your mind enter into this other realm that, uh, or use this other faculty called imagination. And don't question it. Just go with it and interact with it as he doesn't leave her nose, and you will come upon something. But the claim in Christianity is that the revelation has come to us. It is, the revelation is finished, and now what do we do with it? Okay, so that is a bit of a problem. Once you say it's all done, and then it's a matter of just repeating, it gets rather stale, you know, and that's why the churches are empty. They're repeating something that it said so has been said and said and said, and people aren't getting it at the right level, perhaps, but uh, certainly the churches in Switzerland are empty on Sunday morning. And I think throughout Europe and the United States, it's a bit different. I think this connects, uh, Murray, to a question, and it might even be one of the last questions that we will have time for today because time flies. And that is, again, the question about community. It's been brought up in, in many of the conversations I had with different scholars and analysts, and also with you, Murray, when you said, like, what can we learn from Christians? You said, yeah, there is something also about community and about faith. And, and the unions at times struggle maybe with, with the question of community. There is a critique that's often been raised also about unions as a little bit of a group of esoteric elitists uh, or, you know, disconnected a little bit from reality and psychology for the wealthy. Also, if we look at the people who came to Jung, I mean, there was also people who had from a pretty, you know, wealthy background. It wasn't maybe the, the poorest that sort of showed up as a kusnasht, which is fine. But to me, uh, this also... It relates to this question of, of, of Jesus Christ, actually, and, and, and Jung's ambivalent relationship to, to Christ, if I can say so. Because I, I, I think we discussed, all of us individually in our conversation, the question of imitatio Christi and Jung's rendering of that. And the, his sort of clear warning was of, of imitating Christ, 
No, no, no. Don't imitate Christ. Be find yourself, become who you are. But isn't there also a risk somehow in this? Isn't there something that if Christ is not a part of individuation, isn't Christ the community? Isn't Christ what sort of connects my individuation with others? Isn't there something in the image of Christ which is not only a symbol for my own self or potential wholeness, but actually more a symbol of our shared wounds and our shared difficulties in, in living a limited life here on earth? And I wonder, you know, if there's a risk, or if you see that there could be a risk sometimes in in that union psychology reduce the, the social cause of Jesus Christ and the loyalty to the kingdom of God to, to some sort of idea of individual self-actualization. Um, I, I was struck by Anne's uh, touching on this point of community because it is so central to the Christian um, world, whether it's Protestant or Catholic uh, the community and worshiping together praying together and all that is absolutely um, central to, to the practice of Christianity. And uh, that is not in the Jungian world. Jungians do get together and they should listen to lectures together and have discussions, but there is nothing like that uh, sense of um, the numinous in a community. One doesn't look for it there. One looks for it in the inner world. One doesn't look for it in the uh, extroverted world, but I think the word community is, is is abused and overused and misused to refer to any kind of gathering or group of people. That isn't what Christians mean by community. They mean where people are gathered, two or three are gathered, and the Holy Spirit is with them. Uh, that's community. So it's a it's a, a qual it's a qualitative difference, and we don't have that in the union associations, and so we don't look for it there. The, the other thing that is meant in most Christian denominations by community is, or at least by the body of Christ, is those who are who share participation in Christ through baptism and through the Eucharist, at least those two sacraments. And that also does not play into Jungian the Jungian world. And would you say, is there a risk of moral and religious reductionism in, in Jungian psychology? How do you mean, Yanka? I mean, leaving out, you know, anything related to community, too much emphasizing your inner work on your things, yourself, and not speaking of God or Christ or shared images of not what differentiates us from the other, but what holds us together, what makes us put us in the same boat. I think Jung was rightly afraid of the collective. He saw it as inferior, tending towards unconsciousness, you know, mass think, collective think. And his fear of the collective has transmitted down through the generations. Well, I think what you say, Jacob, it's a both and. I don't think Anne would uh, favor uh, one exclusively over the other, but you have the, the communal activities which are centered and grounded in the symbols. And, and then you have the active out of the meaning of those symbols in the community activities and so on outside social um, justice movements and that sort of thing. That's where I was introduced to you. It was Elizabeth O'Connor who wrote this book, Journey Inward, Journey Outward. And it was at the Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C. She was on the staff there. And uh, everybody who belonged to that church had to belong to a mission. And the mission was active in various different ways in the community, but they would all gather together for uh, services and worship services and, and a very charismatic leader and preacher and uh, the rituals were very powerful so it was both really and I think it takes both to to bring a community to life and give it a sense of mission and purpose it isn't just for the benefit of the individual members and their spiritual life but it has to move out into the world isn't the transforming 
of the world, part of the Christian mission. Absolutely. But you have to be careful about that transforming because then it becomes, as soon as you get into politics, I'm, I'm very leery of politics. They can be, of course, very powerful and positive, but usually when it becomes political, power takes over and love disappears. You said you choose love. Politicians choose power and they'll do anything to keep yeah. So the political is a very corrupting element, but you still need it. You need power to transform things. But if you get lost in politics, it all becomes all power. Yeah. That's the problem. Jung said, when there is power, there is no love. And, and you, you reminded me of Dante's journey. And when you said you choose love, that was what Dante discovered in Paradiso. Mm -hmm. uh, what actually... Uh, uh, moves the sun and all the other stars. It's love, and it in, infected him, and he became transformed by that. So that was the Dante uh, Dante's journey, and then he would have lived that if he had lived longer, I guess, in the rest of his life. But it does take a vision, you know. You can say I choose love, but you have to be gripped by a vision somehow, don't you? I mean. That's where the psyche comes into play. It isn't just the value, the idea, but it it has to be somehow powerfully psychologically motivated by a we, we would say an archetypal energy that you experience and that motivates you and keeps you, sustains you. Christians would call it the Holy Spirit. Jacob, you were bringing us back to the question of Imitatio Christi and the aspect of the imitation of Christ, which involved brother and sisterhood with the poor uh, and the suffering. That is an essential part, I think, of the ministry of the church when it can remember that that, when, that that is its life. That's Francis. Yeah, it's Francis. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and how much of that can be lived? And where do we see examples of it being lived anywhere, either in the church, which tends to get seduced by the world anyway, or in the Jungian world, do we see that identification with the poor and preferential placement of the poor anywhere in the Jungian community now? Is that part of our of our vision? Well, Jakob, you did something like that in Berlin, didn't you? There beyond the street. I've been trying to at least maybe not build a bridge, but trying to keep a relationship to that side of community. Yeah, and for me, it's been you know it's been strikingly just a lack of that. In, in, in you correct me if I'm wrong, but in Jung's in reading Jung, I I do not hear much about the poor, and you know that's maybe fine, but I I, I feel there's a a lack of that discourse and. You know, again, I feel like Jungian psychology is, uh, yeah, that's what I do. You know, this is what I sit with every workday. It, it's so extremely deeply valuable. But I think there is also danger if it's not connected to, if this journey inward is not connected to to what's actually is just in front of us, yeah, what's just out of there. On a practical level, I can say at times we speak about someone dreaming about a beggar. And I think an immediate maybe interpretation could be from my fantasy union analyst that this is the beggar in you. This is your inner, you know, poverty. 
And, and there's something to that. There is something to that. But sometimes a beggar is just a beggar. Sometimes there's also something about just, yeah, but look at what is in front of you. And, and, and I think that's, that's maybe also what I, where I have had a lot of help of Freud, actually, uh, and Freud's emphasis on reality, Freud's emphasis on the reality principle. And, and obviously, I, I, I struggled myself with the tension of, of holding this, you know, how much of, uh, yeah, the focus on, on my or my patient's individuation versus, you know, uh, and helping them to feel better or feel more whole. And, and at the same time, facing a world that is continues to disintegrate in front of our eyes. And that's a, that's a huge uh, disconnect of cognitive dissonance at times to hold this attention. And I think that's where I do believe that Jung, in my understanding, Jung needs Christ. Yeah. This is my very personal, you know, working through of that. So, yeah, I've been involved in, in, in some projects on trying to take psychology out of the practice room with various successful results, I should say, but struggling continues.